0: This episode is sponsored by Wilderness Trail Distillery. Wilderness Trail Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey and Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey. 50% alcohol by volume, 100 proof. Distilled and bottled by Wilderness Trail Distillery, Danville, Kentucky. Copyright 2023, Campari, America, New York, New York. Drink responsibly. In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is the Vine Pair Podcast, where today I am joined by Dr. Patrick Heist, co-founder, co-owner, and chief scientific officer of Firm Solutions, and perhaps more well-known to our audience, Wilderness Trail. Pat, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here. So first of all, important question that we ask most of our guests, where do we find you today? Where, where's, where's home, or work, or both?
1: So I split. Uh, residency between Kentucky and Washington DC these days. And then, oh, okay. and then I spend a good bit of time on the road as well.
0: I bet. Yeah. Out there, out there, uh, slinging the juice, as they say one way or another. So let's talk a little bit about your background, right? Cause I think your, your route to the whiskey industry is maybe a, a little bit unfamiliar or a little bit unusual when it comes to, uh, to bourbon and to whiskey more broadly. Um, so kind of, What's your background? I know you've got a, a a real a real rich scientific background, and then kind of how did you get into the whiskey industry?
1: Yeah, so I took a pretty crooked path to get to the <laughs> distilling industry. Uh, started off as a microbiologist, and um, you know during the process of getting my PhD in plant pathology, which is another um, division of microbiology, sort of more over in agriculture. I started hanging out with my business partner, Shane Baker, who's an, who's an engineer. He's a mechanical engineer. And we used to play in a rock band together. And throughout the, the days of figuring out where we were going to play, we talked a lot about each of our respective you know occupations and interests. And then we finally came together to uh, form a company that sells yeast and fermentation products as well as laboratory and technical support to distilleries and breweries. So 10 years before we started Wilderness Trail, we started another company called Firm Solutions, firm as in fermentation, and we have been servicing hundreds of different distilleries and breweries uh, and other companies, anything that has to do with fermentation for, for almost 20 years now. And so after about 10 years of running that business, we you know, had a lot of experience working with distilleries and breweries. And then with my background in microbiology and biochemistry, Shane's background in engineering, uh, it, it made a lot of sense to start a distillery. So we started Wilderness Trail uh, out of that company. So that, that's a little, in general, how we got started. Very cool.
0: And to what extent... Like, I think we think about sometimes when we think about uh, whiskey or distilling in general as obviously a process that requires a lot of practical knowledge, knowledge that has obviously scientific basis to it. But what, what are some of the ways that you've brought, you both have brought your sort of uh, science and engineering backgrounds to bear on the product that is, that are the products that are Wilderness Trail now? Like, what, what do you do that sets, you know, sets some of that in motion?
1: Yeah, you know, when you look at people in this industry, you know, a lot of the, the people who are famous for you know innovation and, and being in this industry, a lot of people have only ever been at one distillery, and and you know, if you've not if you've been at more than one distillery, you've been at multiple distilleries in the same spirit class. So, you mm-hmm. know, people who are in bourbon, it might have been at multiple distilleries. And so I think, you know, what one thing that sets us apart is the fact we work with so many different distilled spirits producers. And again, we're talking about rum producers, tequila. And then you get into whiskey and we're talking about, you know, bourbon, rye whiskeys in the United States. Now we got a lot of American single malt. Uh, that whole category is sort of developing Um, we've got, you know, uh, in, 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 again, just looking at whiskey, we've got scotch and Irish whiskey producers, Canadian whiskey producers. There's a lot of different diverse production going on across, you know, Across the world. And so we're privy to all those different production styles. In addition to that, we do a lot of business with the beer providers, the hard seltzer producers, even non alcoholic fermented beverages like kombucha and kefir. So the range of experience that we've got, and again, most of the time when we engage with our clients, it's because our yeast is getting the blame for a problem that, that we didn't <laughs> cause. So uh, often it is, you know, hey, your damn yeast isn't working. And then we go from that to wait a second, you have a grain quality issue or you're trying to ferment molasses, but you're not supplementing any nitrogen or you've got bacterial contamination. There's all these things. So working with hundreds of distilleries and breweries has kind of given us a little bit of an edge of, you know, understanding and, and knowing about many different facets of this industry.
0: And then how does that how does that that informs kind of the way you approach the fermentation process in particular for Wilderness Trail? Because it's my understanding that you guys do some things pretty differently than a lot of other bourbon and whiskey producers. How Can you kind of explain what some of those key points of differentiation are?
1: Yep. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, we're we're science guys running a very scientific uh, operation. Again, you know, my background's in microbiology. Shane is in, in engineering. So when you just focus on, you know, my background of microbiology, one thing that we do very differently is the sweet mash process. So, sweet mash process is uh, different from sour mashing in that, in the mashing process, if you're doing a sour mash whiskey, um, you're blending the milled grains into water plus liquid left over from a previous distillation. That is the sour mashing process. If we're making a sweet mash, which we do at Wilderness Trail. We're going to blend our or mix our milled grains together with all 100% fresh water each time. And one of the reasons that a lot of, of historically famous distilleries do the sour mash process is because it helps them mitigate bacterial contamination issues that are just inherent to older facilities. So Wilderness Trail being a very new facility and being designed and built by the two guys who are called to solve issues across the industry for other people, we've just got a really good handle on when we built that facility, you know, what were all the things that caused everybody to have contamination issues, how can we prevent that, and then that enables us to be able to do things like sweet mash process. So, you know, what is the advantage of doing a sour mash is by bringing forward that liquid from a previous batch, that acidifies the mash and makes you less susceptible to microbial contamination. So we don't have to do that because we're able to keep our process extremely clean.
0: And how does that then translate into, in your eyes, a better whiskey?
1: So we're not really trying to say that sweet mash is better than sour mash. Because you know everybody's favorite whiskeys are, are sour mashes, you know, and we're, we're a very new type of way to do it. So we're not trying to say it's better necessarily. It's just it's equally as good, and it's good in a different way. Okay. So you know, and in, in why it makes it different, it one a couple reasons actually. One is that we're able to keep our our production more consistent because. We're not using a liquid that is inherently inconsistent. You know, if you're taking material from previous batches, if those batches came out differently, that liquid's going to be different. Fresh water every time is very consistent. So we're able to maintain a lot of consistency uh, by doing it that way. Another thing is that the acidity of our fermentations is higher than the acidity of a sour mash. That's what they call it sour mash. It actually tastes acidic. That's why they call it sour mash. And so by using the sweet mash method, our fermentations run on a higher pH. They're less acidic, and therefore the distillate is less acidic, and that's slightly less acidity lets the drinker enjoy the product at higher abvs so our base offering is bottled in bond at 100 proof for example our cask strength offerings are you know 113 to 118 proof typically and so those are very enjoyable even at those higher proofs and a lot of that has to do with the difference of acidity or the ph differences
0: Interesting. And, you know, you mentioned proof, and that's actually been something I wanted to ask about because it's been a topic of conversation on this podcast a lot of late with with whiskey, specifically and, and spirits more generally. And something I know about Wilderness Trail is that you go into the barrel at a relatively low proof for bourbon, for whiskey. What What's kind of the thought behind that?
1: So, you know, proof is important for several reasons. You've got the law that states bourbon can't be distilled over 160 proof. We're coming off the still at about 137 to 138 proof. Bourbon can't go into the barrel any higher than 125, so already we're coming off the still higher than we can enter the barrel. So we're going to go down to 110 proof, um, as opposed to a lot of bourbon producers going at 125, which is the maximum, and that's really an economic decision in a lot of cases. You're able to save money on barrels by going. You're putting more alcohol in each barrel. So, you know, we've kind of really, I mean, we're a distillery that was founded and built by two of the biggest bourbon fans on the planet. So we really have always tried to do things with making the best bourbon in the world in mind. And so the barrel entry proof is very important to us. And so a couple reasons why we go into the lower barrel entry proof, even though it costs us a little more money, is when you look at the process of extracting flavor and chemicals from the barrel, you have to appreciate that a lot of what you're trying to extract, some of that is water-soluble, some of that's alcohol-soluble. So by having the right balance of water and alcohol, you're scientifically able to, you know, maximize extraction of, of those those goodies. Another thing that was important to us going into the barrel at 110 proof Uh, Besides some historical precedents that was set by some famous old distilleries, one of them being the old Stitzel Weller Distillery that uh, Shane, my business partner, his grandmother and his grandparents used to actually work at that distillery. So we we had some kind of historical uh, knowledge and background of their production, which is world famous for, you know, the old Wellers and uh, Pappy Van Winkle, old Fitzgerald, some of those brands. So the barrel entry proof was important for the extraction, but also the fact that our standard offering, when we first started, we knew that we wanted to offer a bottle in bond. All of our standard offerings are bottle in bond, and if bottle in bond is always bottle at 100 proof, so if you go into the barrel at 100, you're coming out at you know 113 to 118, you don't have to make much of a dilution to get it to 100 So you're maintaining a lot of that consistency, a lot of the color, a lot of the complexity of what you're getting out of the barrel and not over diluting. So those are a few reasons why we felt that that 110 was a good good spot for us.
0: And I'm curious you know you mentioned bottled and bond and I think that's one of those um, phrases that for a certain kind of whiskey lover um you know bourbon in particular obviously has a lot of resonance you know what was the what was the reason that you decided that all of the kind of core offerings would be bottled and bond
1: well when we first started our distillery, we knew that we wanted to do things a little different than is traditional for startup distilleries we knew we didn't want to source any product from any other distilleries so so that was something that by with our first product, we've never released anything that that wasn't outside of, like, single barrel that, that you know, just because the proof can't be called a bottle in bond. But our standard offerings have always been bottled in bond. So it was important for us to, you know, the first bottles that we ever released, that we actually made them and we actually bottled them. So that was one thing. Um, another thing was that we... So let me collect my thoughts here. So we, we had the, we wanted to be the ones that made it. But another thing was just the whole, I mean, the reputation or the way that people think about bottle and bond. I mean, you know that it's made from a distillery, it's bottled by the distillery that made it. It's also, we didn't want to release anything that wasn't at least four years old. So I guess, you know, bottle and bond kind of embodies that. You know, new distilleries, not only do they tend to source for a while, which is perfectly understandable. We don't have any problem with that. But new distilleries also tend to release products that really aren't mature enough. You know, they're trying to stay alive. And, you know, you'll get a two-year-old or sometimes even less than that. And it's just not really great bourbon till it's four years old. And that's why bottling bond, straight bourbon laws, you know, kind of Focus around that four-year mark is being the minimum for a a really good bourbon, and so those were a couple reasons why you know bottling bond was very important to us.
0: You know, Pat, this is like a little bit of a digression, but I, I just I in listening to you, I've been thinking about this and thinking about you know you're talking about the reputational effect of bottled and bond and the importance of sort of that being the people who produce all of your liquid, et cetera. Talk to me, I guess, about you know what it means to be uh, not just a, a bottle and bottom bourbon, but a Kentucky bourbon. I mean, obviously, it seem, may seem kind of clear on the face of it to a lot of our listeners, like, you know, even though bourbon can legally be made throughout the United States, Kentucky is obviously still not just the spiritual home, but really the the industrial home of bourbon. But why is Kentucky such a great place to make bourbon?
1: yeah and and you know that's a great question. and using the insight that we have of you know we provide fermentation products to distilleries all across the United States. and And nowadays, you can get great bourbon from other states. I mean, not I mean, I've definitely got a soft spot for Kentucky. And, and still believe, I mean, there's a reason why 95 plus percent of all the bourbon is still made in Kentucky, you know, but historically, why has Kentucky kind of been the place where people situated for bourbon production? It has a lot to do with the climate there. And same with Scotland and Ireland and, you know, those, those places as well. You know, a lot of the reason why the whiskey has become world famous. I mean, people have made whiskey everywhere, historically but they settle on those places i mean if you make bourbon in southern texas for example you may not have one drop of anything left in that barrel after four (laughs) years maybe even after two years so the evaporative loss is really that 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 huge and then you get all these permutations of okay your your barrel might not be totally empty after four years but if it's got you know, a quarter of what was in it, it's not only economically disappointing, but what's in that barrel might be a little more like whiskey sludge than, you know, what we're used to seeing. So that's kind of why nowadays we have good whiskey produced in almost every state because we have figured out that, oh, if humidity is the issue, I can supplement that. And so now you got a lot of sophistication around and a lot of money, too, and utilities around, you know, mitigating temperatures, mitigating humidity, whereas in Kentucky, we've either got the windows open or the windows closed. <laughs> so it's very simple.
0: A nice high-tech solution to a to a complex problem there. Oh yeah. I want to talk a little bit about some of the individual products uh, the the sort of three core products because I think it's really interesting to look at um, sort of the the intention and maybe some of the the iteration that went into those. So so starting with the Probably with the straight weeded bourbon, uh, which is, I'm guessing, probably the one that most, well, I don't know, the straight high rye might also be kind of equally well-known to people. But maybe comparing those two, sort of what goes into your, what went into the development process of the mash bill and and kind of how do you view those two in conversation with one another?
1: Yeah, so a couple things, you know, starting off, you know, any bourbon fan that starts off with their own distillery, they should be making recipes that they enjoy already. So, you know, we're weeder fans, probably first and foremost. And then we also love, you know, high rye bourbons. So we started off with what we like the most, which is weeded. But the other thing is, you know, sustainability has always been very important for us. And one of those factors of sustainability is where are you getting your grains from? So we've always wanted to not only support local agriculture, but for sustainability reasons, get our grains from as locally locally sourced as possible. So wheat was something that was readily available to us. You know, a lot of people don't realize it, but most every distillery in the state of Kentucky uses rye in their recipe. We're one of the only distilleries that at least initially (laughs) got all of our rye from the state of Kentucky. And so that took a little bit of time to work with the farmers and that's where my agricultural degree and networking and connections actually kind of came in handy. We were able to to work with our local farmers to get rye varieties that worked here. Uh, That's why most distilleries don't get their rye from Kentucky because there's not a lot of rye grown here. So we were able to work with the farmers to get, get the grain grown here and that's why that was our second product and then same with our rye whiskey. Um, The mash recipe, we do a 64% corn on both of our bourbons, 24% of either wheat or rye, and then 12% malted barley. So the only difference between our wheated bourbon and our high rye bourbon is that one's got 24% wheat, one's got 24% rye. So lower amounts of corn, you know, we felt that was very important and higher amounts of those middle grains for flavor. Again, you're talking about two bourbon fans making the distillery here um but the you know then you got the sweet mash process fitting into that so but the other thing is having a weeded bourbon and a rye bourbon that essentially were exactly the same. I mean, we're always kind of like, you know, if I want to demonstrate to someone the difference between a weeded bourbon and a high rye bourbon, what am I going to do? Go buy a bottle of Buffalo Trace and a bottle of Maker's Mark? It's, it's you know, different man's recipe. So here you have an opportunity. And this has really played into our favor. Not only people visiting the distillery. It's like, well, hell, if I'm going to get a weeded, I might as well pick up a rye and then bartenders, you know, hey, I want to demonstrate to someone on a flight the difference between a weeded and a high rye bourbon. This is a perfect opportunity, you know. And then our rye whiskey is very extraordinary because, again, you've got those Kentucky grains in there. Uh, but we're not using the traditional 95% rye, 5% malted barley that almost every other rye is is become. Uh, We've got 56% rye, 33% corn, so it's got a little bit of that sweetness of the corn, and 11% malted barley. So, uh, and then with that sweet mash process, the fact that, you know, when you look at other ryes uh, that are, you know, the most popular ryes, they're 80, 90 proof, and they're coming out of the barrel above 125 because that's what they went in at. So you look at ours being a standard offering of 100 proof, coming down from 113 to 118, it really is a breath fresh air for rye whiskeys, in my opinion, because of the amount of color and complexity that is retained, because we're not completely diluting it down to nothing.
0: Okay, let's, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about kind of present and, and future for Wilderness Trails. So obviously, a lot of our listeners will be very familiar that in 2022, uh, you know, you sold a... Seventy percent of the of the uh, distillery to uh, Campari, and you know we talked about it on the podcast. But we thought it was a really exciting moment for for both kind of companies in a lot of ways. What what has that partnership meant for you, kind of since that point, uh, in terms of maybe obviously? opportunities to expand uh, into different markets or have just uh, uh, that kind of support that maybe as a, uh, a, when you were starting out, you know, even if you had a, a, you know, a good handle on the business side of it, it's it's different when you've got one of the biggest spirits companies in the world kind of in your corner.
1: Yeah. You know, when we started Wilderness Trail, w- you know, I think Shane would agree that, you know, we didn't think we were going to become the 14th largest bourbon producer in the world in less than 10 years. Yeah. So things really got crazy very quickly for us. And so when you look at, you know, not only the fact we were in 44 states, we're in 50 now, uh, again, 44 states before the the acquisition by Campari, we were just starting to kind of dip our toes into the global market and in, in just very... Quickly, it became apparent to us it would really benefit us to have a partner that had more of the distribution network than than what we already have. So that's probably one of the big things. You know, the capital that a company like Campari has, I mean, you know, Wilderness Trails always done really well on capitalization, but just to have that extra level. Uh, to to do things like, you know, right now we're doing an expansion where we're adding some new fermenters, which will increase our fermentation time and uh, get our yields up a little bit. So, you know, just, you know, it allows us to move a little bit quicker. I mean, it's always we've always kind of said, Shane and I, and more, really more Shane being on the operation side, you know, how fast can you afford to go? You know, it takes money to, to move and, and get a business moving. And so we're just kind of at that point in time to where it made a lot of sense to partner with someone who had more of a global presence. And then and then, you know, and then with the vast amount of experience that we have, you know, kind of a two way street on, you know, we're helping them uh, and they're helping us. So it's, it's really funny. been a, a great um, cooperation.
0: And I wanted to ask, too, you know, one of the big things that we've seen, ch- I think, change in in particular in Kentucky with the bourbon industry is, you know, the real rise of interest in bourbon tourism. People coming to Kentucky, uh, coming to not just Louisville, but, you know, in many cases wanting to visit distilleries, kind of wherever in the state they might be. What does uh, that look like for Wilderness Trail? You know, what does that mean to you all? And, and how big of a part of the business is that sort of in-person foot traffic?
1: It's very important to us. You know, it's it's – Anyone who's ever visited Wilderness Trail, there there are very few people that have visited there that aren't just lifelong fans. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a great place to showcase our expertise, to let people, you know, kind of see what we're about to tell people about what we do and to get them to understand. And hopefully they'll leave even the most experienced bourbon aficionado will leave Wilderness Trail with more information that they came there with. Being on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail also has been very important to us. We started off as members of the Kentucky Distillers Association when we first started our craft distilling operation, you know, 10 years ago. We were on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail craft tour and then we uh, graduated up to <laughs> proof members and now we're on the Heritage Trail. So that's, you know, right on the same, you know, is is Maker's Mark and Jim Beam and Heaven Hill and all these other Wild Turkey and all these other very classic distilleries. You know, we're right there on the same footing as them nowadays. So the tourism that comes in, the uh, amount of social media and different type of media advantages we get by being members of the Kentucky Distillers Association as well as the Bourbon Trail. It's, it's you know, been it's really changed our operations significantly.
0: And in our last few minutes here, you know, I want to talk a little bit about what the future looks like for uh, Wilderness Trail. So obviously, you know, people who have been paying attention to to the dates know that you guys are kind of at that ten year mark. Um, you know, what does that mean for what maybe uh, you are looking to do in the future? Maybe you know, I know there's some maybe some product release coming associated with that ten year mark, et cetera. So kind of what does the next? What do the next few years look like in your eyes?
1: Yeah. So. We, we've got three different mash recipes, so that keeps us busy. You know, a lot of people ask us, when are you going to do something different? You know, it's always, it's like, well, we've, we've got our hands full with three different mash recipes. But we do have a fourth one that we've been making, a, a four-grain bourbon that, that should be available both as our base offering as well as aged expressions as time goes on. Um but with all of our you know our, our two bourbons and our rye whiskey it's it's exciting to come into you know we're getting ready to release our first ten year, for example, you know that's very exciting you know two years from now we'll be into twelve year It's just you know the, the older old age statements are extremely exciting and, and then there's there's little you know little things like fifty mil bottles and other things that for a new distillery is very exciting we do have some other things we've done very little so far with barrel finishing. We did a, uh, I think a maple syrup finish, not too long ago. There's a lot of that going on in the industry. So we kind of want to keep our, you know, keep our identity. We don't want to just immediately start doing a bunch of barrel finishes without really having a good handle on our base spirit and what is our intention. You know, what, why are we even changing it at all? Um, so you know, there's some of that kind of coming around.
0: You know, I, I actually have to ask too. This just made me think. So when you talk about releasing like the ten year or in a couple of years now the twelve year, you know, given the kind of meteoric rise of Wilderness Trail and your reputation, you've got to anticipate that those are going to be highly desirable bottles. And and presumably, well, I mean, certainly there is limited supply. How limited that supply is, you know, I don't know. How do you kind of look at making sure? you know, or I assume kind of hoping to ensure that, you know, those bottles end up in in the hands of people who are going to really enjoy them as much as you can. Obviously, there's only so much that you can do. But obviously, I think a modern distillery has to think about, you know, kind of the, the wild secondary market for bourbon and just kind of how that all works.
1: Yeah. You know, to date, Wilderness Trail has seen its share of, you know, frenzies and different things in terms of people clamoring to get bottles. But we really are kind of a, you know, a, gem, a diamond in the rough right now you know a lot of people who come in on these special release days are the people who we want to get those bottles these are people who we recognize i mean they're they're standing in line because they're big fans of wilderness not because they're going to try to flip those bottles as soon as they leave so you know the good i mean it's kind of a good thing that there's not a huge at least so far secondary market for wilderness because it doesn't Uh, elicit a lot of that behavior so as of today we're still able to enjoy very traditional operation with people that come in that really love our product and aren't just coming in to get the advantage of the secondary market i'm sure that'll change over time but as of right now it's very enjoyable and we're not having to fend a lot of that off
0: all right, and then I have to finish up with one last question because we've talked a lot about the background. I think it's really fascinating, but obviously in the end the point of what you're making is to drink it and to enjoy it. So maybe you can tell our listeners sort of how how are the ways you most enjoy
1: drinking your whiskeys? So the way that I most enjoy it would be neat, you know. I think any any spirit you should taste it neat before you even if you order a cocktail first, at least get a little Couple drops on the side just to wet your whistle with. So I enjoy drinking it neat, but I'm not going to fault anybody. Like anybody else in this industry, you know, we got customers who. Uh, customers always right, you know. If if they're drinking it in a Coke or whatever, that's fine. Uh, but I, I really personally I like the old fashioned um, with the rye whiskey. I've been really into paper planes. That's oh, kind of a, a unique sort of a newer cocktail that I would highly encourage anyone to, to try if they haven't yet. That's also got Aperol in it. So that's a uh, Campari. Yeah, a twofer right one, there. We make a, a twofer, as well as a Negroni. So we're yeah. kind of in the same family now. So, uh, but, you know, those are some things that I, ways I like to drink it.
0: Fantastic. Well, Pat, thank you so much for your time. Really fascinating conversation. Very excited to see kind of where Wilderness Trail goes from here. And again, congratulations on 10 years. And, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show.